Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Okay, good. Well, good morning. It is, it is so good to see you. We're glad that, uh, that you're here. And again, if you're our guest, we want to welcome you. We hope you feel loved. We hope all of you feel loved and embraced by, by your brothers and sisters around you and especially by the love of Jesus. And that's really, uh, that's the most important thing. I uh, want to give you an announcement. Uh, I think we sent a, a note out this week, but let you know that our new worship pastor is Shannon Rance. And um, Jeremy Wallace is still going to be in the rotation. And he's still going to uh, lead for us, help us. But we decided a while back that what we needed to do was release, really, Jeremy to give his undivided attention to Canby Bible College. And we want Canby Bible College to continue to grow beyond where it's at. We know that it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a difficult market, and we want to release we want to release him to do that. So Shannon Rance is a great lady. Her and Brian are wonderful people, a great family, and we're so thankful that they're with us and they're part of this church community, and we are blessed people. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to take a little tour with you. Uh, the 1st of May, Annette and I, along with 30 others, left for Israel for the better part of really two weeks, and we had an amazing time because this is a place where Jesus walked this is a place where our Old Testament mothers and fathers walked. One of the most rewarding, really rewarding things about being there with 30 others is how God spoke to each individual. It was so rewarding to watch them have their aha moments where Jesus said to them, follow me in a deeper, more profound way. Israel is a place of discovery. It's a classroom. It's a sacred experience all at the same time. And literally, it's about making disciples that make disciples. And so on behalf of the team that journeyed together, Annette and I want to bring something to you, and that's a little tour of Jesus in the Galilee. It's in the Galilee that you, uh, you recognize and, and understand that Jesus spent about 70% of his public ministry there. Uh, so that tells us something. This is where he preached the good news of God's kingdom. To the poor, to the brokenhearted, to captives, to blind, to the oppressed. Our Savior showed us how to live sideways with our neighbors and community. I mean, how you reach out to them and love them. And the place that Jesus grew up, where he started his own uh, growth, his own formation, with his earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, was in a little village called Nazareth. And during the time of Christ, the time that he lived there, Nazareth was just a real small hill village. Um, the whole village was probably three or four blocks at the most. And it was a subsistence kind of living. And it was an agrarian kind of life. And it was literally in the hills. It's in the southern, what we would say today, the southern part of the Lebanese Range Mountains. And um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing place because what we, what we see here is Jesus living in those hills, running around as a little boy in those mountains. And when Jesus came into Jerusalem especially, uh, they, they looked at where he came from. It, it really meant something to the religious leaders, his pedigree. And they looked at him and they literally said, is this Jesus of Nazareth, the hillbilly? I mean, that, that's, what they were, that's what they called him. They called him a hillbilly. 
because he lived in those mountains. And can you imagine him running around those hills? And he actually could probably go over one of the peaks and he could see the Valley of Jezreel, uh, Armageddon. Uh, This is where time as we know it will end. Jesus, the son of the living God, looking down into that valley. It had to be kind of astonishing. And we left there and we went to the Jordan River area. And we love that area because there, there are really two parts to that that we enjoyed. Recently, over in the, I think just in the last few years, Israel and Jordan have opened up that area for, uh, for tourists to go to the, to the original site of Jesus' water baptism. And they suspect it's within probably 50 to 100 yards of where he was baptized. And you look into that river, and it was amazing. We stayed there. We spent a little time there. We worshiped together. And I think one of the most inspiring things about being there was that as we started to worship, the 30 of us, uh, the group probably tripled because people from all places around the the site there just kind of gathered together with us. And just started to worship the Lord. Right across the river is the country Jordan. I mean, you can see that there's not much separation. I had someone ask me last night, well, wait a minute. Uh, The Jordan River, it looks so small. It it looks so little. And and it is. Um, It means the little Dan. And so you see that. Um, And then this is also the place where the children of Israel crossed over with Joshua into Jericho. Um, this person said, well, I thought the river was bigger when they crossed over. It was. It was during flood stage. And we don't know how wide or deep it was then. They didn't have the damming systems or the irrigation systems that they do now. So it had to be a substantial body of water to cross. And then we went to, we took the group to the place that we... um, we have baptisms where uh, the, the country of Israel hosts water baptisms. And it, it really is a, a beautiful site. It's up a little further north. And so I think there were about 20 folks that were baptized in the River Jordan. And we had a wonderful time. Uh, I had a great time along with Emily Ferguson. We were able to baptize those that were there that wanted to be baptized. It was, uh, it was great. One of the things that I usually do before water baptism, as I do here, is I give a little instruction and read Scripture. And I thought it would be fun to read a different kind of Scripture at the River Jordan on this particular day. They have tiles all around, uh, um, uh, all around the site there from different countries, different people, different languages, uh, people who have con- uh, and countries who have donated to this site. And we came across one in particular. It's from the Friends of YWAM in Hawaii. And so what I, what I wanted to do was I wanted to read the water baptism of Jesus in, in Pigeon. And so I want to read it to you and tell me if this isn't moving. It says this. It says, That time Jesus come from Nazareth town, Galilee side. And John, when baptized him inside the Jordan River, right then, Jesus, when come up out of water. And you know what? Jesus, when see the sky broke open, and when spoke God's spirit coming down on top of him, just like a dove. And wow. Had one voice from the sky when say, you my boy. You my boy. You my boy. I really get love and aloha for you. And I stay good inside because of you. 
And that speaks that just that common language. The common language that Jesus actually grew up with, not pigeon, but Galilean. <laughs> and we know that the Lord did a wonderful thing for us there, and he touched people, and it was a beautiful time, beautiful experience. When we're in the... There you go. When we're in the Galilee area, one of the places that we love to start is <clears throat> Mount Arbel. Mount Arbel is an overlook. Um, we climb up and hike up to this overlook area, and it's so beautiful. You see the lush farmlands, you see the villages, and you see the Sea of Galilee. What I love about Mount Arbel, besides it being so beautiful, is that you really get to see what Jesus saw. It's a bird's eye view of the area that Jesus ministered in. He ministered 70% of his time on earth was in the Galilee area. So he saw, and he always had this perspective. He always had this encompassing view of the people that he ministered to and he lived among. He always sees the big picture. He always sees the whole picture. And so when we're, in, when we're at Mount Arbel, we always take time to worship and to look out and just to take it in. And it's just such a beautiful place. It was in this region of the Galilee that Jesus was working with the blue-collar folks. It was the farmers and the fishermen. And so he spent time here, and he loved them, and he knew them. The Sea of Galilee is one of the favorites. Whenever we have gone, we love being in this area of Israel because it's quiet. It's peaceful. Um, it's like Canby. It's, like <laughs> it's slower pace. Uh, it's away from the traffic and the chaos. Um, and when you go into Jerusalem, you see the difference. But we love being in the Galilee because it's so, there is such a peace there. It's on this sea, though, and we get to be on it and on a boat that the disciples had that distress that they needed Jesus. They had the distress of their own. They had to exercise viable faith that was their own. Because up until this point, they had been with Jesus and been um, bystanders of Jesus touching people, other people in distress. But now they're the real guys on a real boat, in a real sea, in a real storm, and they're not onlookers anymore. They're leading characters in this life and death. And in Mark 4, 39, it says this, He got up, Jesus got up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely, completely calm. It's so incredible. I love going. I love Israel. I love the Sea of Galilee. So it's so incredible to be on the Sea of Galilee in a boat knowing Jesus spoke those words. The Galilee is so personal. It's so intimate. It's about breakfast with Jesus. It's about fishing and camping with Jesus. It's about weddings and family times with Jesus. He, and when we're there, we, 
remember, because it's so personal, our storms that we've gone through. Mm-hmm. The storms that I've gone through are so personal, and Jesus is personally there. Mm. The disciples were humble enough. They were sensible enough. They were sincere enough when they were in the storm to ask for help, and Jesus helped them. Mm-hmm. When I give up my own storms, uh, battling, trying to battle my own storms and the ability to try to solve my own problems, and I turn to him, he gives us rest and relief. And we celebrate on the boat. We dance on the boat. And it's just so much fun. While in the Galilee, we also visit Peter's primacy. And Peter's primacy is right on the shores of the Galilee. It's where Jesus met Peter and where he met a lot of his disciples, all of his disciples. And it's a lot of discipleship happens right here on the shores of the Galilee at Peter's primacy. Instruction and challenge happen there. Rebuke and restoration happened on these shores. Mm -hmm. Friendship and community happened here. I want to read to you John 21, 1 through 6, and then 10 and 12, 10 through 12. It says, um, starting in verse 21, Later Jesus appeared to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, and they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, Fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, Throw out your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. In verse 10, it says, bring, Jesus says to them, bring some of the fish you've been, that you've caught, just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Duly noted is 153 large fish. It's kind of unusual to have such an accurate number or a particular number, and I think whenever there is that, um, that kind of thing, that, a number that's so accurate in the Bible, it's not by chance. There's a reason for it. And in this passage of Scripture, it says they caught 153 large fish. When we were there, we were told that uh, in science and studying the Sea of Galilee, the ancient sea when Jesus walked on the earth, that they discovered that there were 153 species of fish in the Sea of Galilee when Jesus lived there. Hmm. Now, I don't think that's a coincidence that they caught 153 fish. That they, I want to believe, and it doesn't say this in Scripture, that maybe, perhaps when they hauled in those fish, there were 153 different species of fish in there Mm -hmm. because Jesus was making a point. He says, you are fishers of men. Mm -hmm. Every man, woman, and child, all mankind, every tribe and tongue, 
every continent, country, and culture, every broken, rejected, outcast person. You are fishers of men of everyone. This is not just a neat magic trick that Jesus was doing, but he was demonstrating and revealing his presence and his power. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that Jesus never wavered from his kingdom convictions, but he also led in such a way that people were drawn to him. Even if their personal values did not line up with his, they felt safe, they were honest, and their lives were ultimately transformed by the power of of his presence. Amen. I'm still uh, soaking that in. That's such a wonderful thing to hear how Jesus moves in people's lives. And people have asked me this. He, he, people have said, where did, Jesus, where did Jesus go when he left Nazareth? I mean, where did he live in the Galilee? Well, by all accounts, what we can conclude in Scripture that he made his home in Capernaum or Capernaum however you want to announce that, it works. But that's where he based. That's what it, there, that, that was his home base. He lived most likely in Peter's, um, Peter's mother-in-law's house. And that, that's where he came and went from during the course of his ministry. If he wasn't out camping or wasn't uh, on the hillside far away where they would just sleep and make their home, it was Capernaum. And we find out in the Gospels that there were so many different miracles that took place in Jesus' hometown. And I love to study the miracles that took place. I love to study what, what he taught there as a, a, as a neighbor of these people of this fishing village. What went on? Well, one of the things that he would do is he would go to the synagogue. And he would, he would teach there. He would talk there. It was a place of conversation. And this is one particular day that he stepped up. And he read from the scroll of Isaiah which we have a count of that in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. And he said this. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What was happening in the nation of Israel and really all Jews spread abroad they went through their daily Bible readings, just like many of us do. If you're reading through the Devotion Oswell Chambers, then you're reading along with other people around the world on the same day that particular passage or a particular lesson. That's exactly what was happening in the time of Christ. Jews everywhere were reading Isaiah chapter 61. This is what Jesus read, and he proclaimed at this point, as the inauguration of his public ministry, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he went out, and that's the place, the, the moment that his public ministry began. Healings took place there, the healing of a demoniac, the healing of Peter's uh, mother-in-law, uh, the healing of a paralytic. So many healings took place in Capernaum. But one of the things that we, we don't always understand when we read the New Testament is we hear the uh, parables that Jesus teaches, the object lessons that he gives. And oftentimes we're wondering in our culture, uh, what was he doing in his culture? I mean, he was a, a master teacher. He was an incredible communicator. How, how did he come up with the stuff that he came up with? I mean, what was he, what was he looking at? What was he thinking 
Well, Jesus was so practical in telling his stories that what he was looking at, he was looking at things, objects that were close by him. As the people could see, they would look at certain things. When he would talk about the mustard seed, he pointed at a mustard seed. There's one particular place where he said, um, it would be worse for you to have this millstone tied around your neck and be thrown in that ocean or that water. It would be worse for you, for those that treat uh, these young ones in a horrible way. Well, what's he doing? People say, well, where did that come from? Well, he was standing right there and a few yards from the synagogue are millstones in the the city of Capernaum. And so he just pointed at those millstones about another 100, 150 yards away is the Sea of Galilee. So he's saying it would be worse for you to have one of those tied on your neck and thrown right over there. And so he was just taking and using what he had in God's creation and nature in things that were erected or constructed during that time. And so he was very practical the way he taught. And it's a great lesson for us to, to really do the same. Now, up the hill a little ways from Capernaum is a place that we call, we know as the Mount Beatitudes. And this was the place that Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 and on. He teaches. And that, that, that place that, that he taught is, is not, the, the, the Beatitudes isn't the only, play, only time that he taught there. He probably frequent that area pretty often. And the reason you find out when you go there, the reason that he frequented that place, is because it's, a, it's actually a natural amphitheater. And it would have been a great place to stand on the precipice of that, of that mountain. And uh, it goes into a natural valley where he could speak to over 5,000 people. In some cases, it's counted up to 10,000 people. And you wonder, how did he do that without public address systems or those kinds of things? It was right there that you could actually hear people from a distance. In fact, I was standing up there at one point, and I heard voices, and I couldn't figure out where they were coming. I looked down. I didn't see anyone. And just a few seconds later, someone was coming up the trail. And they were probably at least a three-quarter mile down the hill. And I thought, my goodness, I can hear them all the way up here. And so Jesus was up on this mount and he was speaking to the people and they could actually hear Jesus. And that's the place that we talk about the Beatitudes. Uh, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And uh, we talked, we shared about what the Beatitudes meant. We went through each one of them and uh, uh, it was quite uh, a blessing. It was encouraging for all of us. Oh, so many favorite places for me um, in Israel. And one of those is Caesarea Philippi. And it's without a doubt my personal favorite. And the reason why is I want to explain a little bit um, about this place. This, there's a huge rock, as you see. And, and um, in this rock, during the time of Jesus, there was this huge pagan temple built into the rock. And it had a large cave. It was naturally with a large cave with a river running through it, a stream running through it. And so this pagan temple that they worshipped the god of Pan was taking place there. And so the back of the cave being the cave, the back of the temple being the cave, they were told to believe that it was just the abyss. And that they gave sacrifices to the god of Pan there. And if their sacrifice was caught in the current and taken away, then God accepted their sacrifice. 
But if they threw their sacrifice in and it just kind of whirled in the water and didn't go downstream right away, then God didn't accept your sacrifice. So we get our American word panic from this word, the God of pan. Because these people were panicked. They were always wondering, would God accept them or reject them? They, they were always in this state of confusion. Would God, um, would they succeed or would they fail? Did God hear them? Did, he, did God care for them? And they were always in this place that caused panic in their hearts. And so, to me, to be here in this place with this temple built into this rock and these people wondering who God is to them, that Jesus chose this place to say to Peter, who do they say that I am? And I want to read to you Matthew 16, 13 through 19. It says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. So you're there and you're again reminded of that bold question that Jesus asked with people wondering, broken people, people who are afraid, people who needed a definite answer of who Jesus was. And he asked the question, who do you say that I am? So when I've been there, it is so profound to me because I've been in those places of panic in my life. Hmm. Whether I, you know, in that broken, those broken places in my life where the enemy throws up smoke and mirrors because that's all that temple was. Hmm. It was just a bunch of smoke and mirrors. And so Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? And I have to answer that question every time. I doubt every time I try to take control, every time I'm overwhelmed, every time I feel rejected or dejected or fearful. I have to answer that question that Jesus asked me, who do you say that I am? And my answer is, you are the son of the living God. Mm -hmm. You are my defender. You are my merciful God, my strong tower, my hope. You are my healer. You are my forgiving God. That's who God is. That's who Jesus is. And I love it that he chose this place to ask that question. This place is about personal discovery. Knowing Jesus. Knowing him, not just knowing about him. It's a personal verdict. Who do you say that I am? Can you see Jesus putting his hand on that rock, looking Peter in the eye, And saying, on this rock, 
I will build my church. And then pointing to the temple and saying, and the gates of hell will not prevail. I love that. On this church, you, on this rock, you will build my church. Looking at the broken, seeking people, you will build my church. Amen. Now, one of the things that Jesus was pointing to, like we said earlier, he pointed to what was there. He gave illustration as to what he could see. And if you go back to this cave, it was known during, the, during that time and for the temple worship, worshipers of Pan as the gates of Hades. So it was known as the gates of hell. And so Jesus pointed at the rock, and then he pointed there, and he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Isn't that so assuring that we have a rock and that rock is Jesus Christ and that's the rock we stand on. And I love the question that Jesus asked because he's always getting to the heart of the issue. He asked the question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? The Christ, the Son of the living God is the way that Peter responded. That's the way that I respond. That's the way I hope you respond. And this morning, I just want to share uh, just a few things with you in, in our time, just as we close. I want to share with you some things that are on my heart. Um, as your pastor, as a friend, we're living in some pretty tumultuous times. And what I want to do is I want to take a moment and I want to address the Supreme Court ruling that was made Friday on gay and lesbian uh, marriages, same-sex marriage. And I think there's some things that we need to understand and some things that we need to know. God has grace-filled this church. And I want, I want you to know this. It, it really is with a, with a broken heart. Uh, a broken heart for the gay and lesbian community that, that believe a, a, a legal ruling will bring freedom to their lives. That a legal ruling will bring a remedy to... To, to who they are and their marriages. It's never going to be a legal ruling. It's never going to be a decision made by a Supreme Court that will heal your brokenness, that will heal my brokenness, that will heal the brokenness found in our gay and lesbian communities. It is only Jesus Christ that will make a difference. The Supreme Court will not alleviate our brokenness. It does not have the ability or the power to do so. But I love the way that Jesus lived. I think the answer to my brokenness, to your brokenness, and the brokenness of a gay and lesbian community is the true and, and um, wonderful love found only in Jesus Christ. I love this because Jesus met broken and lonely people where they were. He was a friend of those others hated, others condemned. He actively loved and he shared life with people who who lived in ways different than he believed to be God's best for them. And he ultimately gave up his life for these people. That he died for us. I disagree with the Supreme Court ruling because it is my strong conviction, according to God's word, that marriage is a covenant between man and woman before God and with God. And in fact, marriage, the marriage union between a man and a woman is God's supreme model and example of his relationship between him and his bride, the church, here on this earth. It is what he has chosen to say this is how love works. 
a relationship between same-sex partners, maybe friendship, certainly maybe love, but it is not marriage according to God's word. Now with that said, my heart is um, equally broken with the way so many in our Christian community have responded to the recent ruling of our Supreme Court. The hate, the anger, the bitterness read on social media toward the gay community is absolutely heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Some of the things that I've read in the name of Christianity is vile. Jesus loves people. He loves all people. And I wonder if my Christian brothers and sisters who share their rancor in a mean-spirited way, if they would take that same energy, that same fervor, and ask the Holy Spirit to examine their hearts first before judging someone else's. Because the Bible says that we ought to get our house in order first. And if you think that something like this, a ruling like this, is just uncovering the state of our nation, the morality of our nation, you need to think a little deeper. It also uncovers the sores and the sickness of the body of Christ. And it's all through history that God will use moments just like this to have His church rise up and be salt and light in the communities they live in. Your light would shine and your light will not shine when you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit. You are not obligated to say everything that comes to your mind. The Bible strongly teaches, in fact, Jesus teaches strongly about the way we use our tongue and the way we use our words. And then in all cases, we are to be people of the light. People that represent the grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus in you is the hope of glory. It's Jesus in me that shines that light. This is not a time to celebrate victory or bemoan defeat. This is a time to call on the living God. Who is the only one who can bring conviction and repentance and redemption to all who were broken, including myself. Friends, we need Him. We need the power and outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. Would you take time and examine your own heart? Because when we call the fire of heaven, we need to be in line first and say, Lord, let the fire of heaven... Hit me first. Let, let your work purge me first. Jesus came for the poor. He came for the brokenhearted. He came for the captives. He came for the blind. He came for the oppressed. If we love without truth, that's irresponsible. But truth without love can be callous. The love of Jesus, listen... The love of Jesus is the most powerful force on this planet. Nothing equals the love of Jesus Christ shown to us through the greatest sacrifice, his life, his death, 
and his resurrection. They will know us by our love. By the love that we have experienced that has transformed our lives. Because of him. Because of his grace. Love does win. But it not, might not be the same way the world defines it. It's the infinite love of Jesus Christ that will win. It's the love that you allow to change your life in Jesus that will win. So still, embrace Him. Be a place of grace and truth. You are the church. It's all of our responsibilities. It's what God has called us to. He's called us to such a time as this. And in fact, I'm excited because this is an opportunity for us to shine. 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 And so what do I do? What do you do? Number one, you pray. Before you or I rant about the decisions on social media or start griping about it to our friends or our co-workers, we should pray. When I say pray, I don't mean to pray against the gay community or pray for judgment on the Supreme Court justices, but to pray with a heart of thanks to Christ for the gospel, to pray for the healing of our nation, to pray for the same-sex couples who are celebrating this milestone for their community. Pray generously. Pray confidently. And pray with thanks during this tumultuous time. Pray. And invite the Holy Spirit of God to touch your life. Number two, listen. It's easy to open our mouths. It's easy to have a knee-jerk reaction to this monumental decision. But it really, and I really think it's time for us to listen. To sit quietly and listen to God and His Word. To let it wash over us in waves of grace and mercy and truth. And the confidence that His promises are yea and amen. His Word is infinite. His Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. His Word is alive today. His Word is infallible. We need His Word. We need to stand on His Word. And so I think we need to listen. Listen to people in the community. Listen to the gay community. To step across the boundaries. Have a meal with someone who's different than you. Not with the purpose of convincing them that you're right. But to love them in ways that Christ loved them. Love them in ways that we build relationships. Number three, remember. Remember the goodness of God. Remember the sovereignty of God. Remember the grace of God that God extended to all of us. God is not surprised by what's happened here. This does not take him off course. He does not lose balance. The hearts of the leaders are in God's hands. And he can do as he pleases. At times like this, it's critical for us to remember the power and the plan of God's Holy Spirit. Something much higher than ours. We simply trust Him. We're not people called to fret and rant. We are called people. We are called out people to sacrifice, to love, 
and to live out the boldness of God's scandalous grace to everyone in our paths. Remember this. And then prepare. God calls His people to have an answer of grace within us. That God would give you that grace. Instead of responding with arguments against same-sex marriage, why not form a grace-filled response pointing people to the work God has done in your life? How He has dealt with you. How He has dealt with your insecurities, your brokennesses, your weaknesses. How has He done that? The Bible says we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the power of your testimony. Do not defer your testimony somewhere else. It is your testimony. Tell it. Because he's healed you. He's touched you. Be ready to respond with grace, humility, and truth. That's what God is asking us to do. Our mission is to stand as witnesses to the work of the cross. To the work of Calvary. And the last thing is this. Don't let your love grow cold. Don't let your passion for Jesus wane. This is the time to rise up. Rise up. This is the time to stand. Let this decision cultivate a deeper trust in the God who knows all things, who holds all things together, and He is returning soon. Pour heaping scoops of hot grace on your heart for the lost and the broken, and remember, we're not called to a life of comfort and ease. We are called to follow the one whom the world hated. But let's not make them hate us because we're jerks. If they hate us, let it be because our passion for God and others is so strong, it cannot be overlooked, it cannot be ignored. I know that we have loved ones. I have friends and family members who are part of the gay community. And I look them in the eyes and tell them how much I love them. How much I care. And I want you to know, if you're here and you're struggling, maybe you've come out of the closet and you said, I'm I'm gay. I want you to know that I love you. And I want you to know this church loves you and I want you to know God loves you. And I want... I want to invite you to my house. That after this service, if you come and and we talk, we'll have a meal together. Tonight, tomorrow night, whatever works for you. You're welcomed. You're welcomed in my life. I know this. God's love. His grace is great. And I rest in that. I rest in Him today. Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. And let the peace of God guard your minds and your hearts as we move ahead in the powerful name of Jesus. Father, we come to you as a a community that you have touched, that you have changed. And I come to you as a, a person that has experienced your grace. That if it wasn't for you, if it wasn't for your grace, if it wasn't for your love and truth in my life, I would be lost. But you found me. 
Even when I was your enemy, you sought me and you found me. And your love and grace in my life was overwhelming. It was compelling. It invited me to a relationship with you. How could I hold that back from others? God, let it be extended. This love and grace to all people. You came, you died, and you rose again for all people. We just pray that our hearts, Lord Jesus, would be open to the work of your Holy Spirit, that everyone in this place would say, Lord, I'm standing in line first to receive the fire of heaven. Father, I'm standing in line for my heart to be examined because we know that this begins in the house of the Lord. It's easy to point fingers and say it's starting out there and forget that it really starts in our own hearts. Who do you say that I am? Very personal. Very uncomfortable. Very hard at times. But very healing. Very powerful. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. And we say together, You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.